Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammon of Axios with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and The Times and such places. Hello. With Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. We are going to talk about shopping. Since it's the shopping season, we're going to talk about online versus physical shopping. We're going to talk about self-checkout. We're going to talk about shrinkage and theft and organized retail crime. We are going to talk about airline mergers and specifically the airline merger of Alaska with Hawaiian. We are going to talk about podcasting and whether the podcasting bubble has burst. We have a Slate Plus segment on meetings that should have been emails. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So, Elizabeth, have you done your holiday shopping yet? Did you do that thing that Americans are meant to do on Black Friday and go out and buy lots of Christmas presents? I've done some of it, but I did it all over the internet so far. According to the numbers, about 16%, I think 17%, something like that of all shopping these days in America is done on the internet. But there seems to be this kind of narrative that everything has moved online. So... Emily, do you understand this? I, I feel like there's a disconnect here that like all of the buzz and the discourse is surrounding e-commerce, even though good old fashioned bricks and mortar commerce still and for, for the foreseeable future is going to represent the overwhelming majority of retail. Well, I think the excitement goes where the growth is and the growth is in e-commerce, is in, is online. The line goes up and to the right. Since the emergence of the internet, um, more and more people have been shopping online and migrating to online, especially that surged, obviously, in the pandemic. And then it did fall back a bit, right? Yeah, it ticked back down a little, but it's still elevated from pre-pandemic levels. And one thing that was sort of interesting that I learned in the prep was online sales um, in the fourth quarter last year were 16% of all retail compared with about 14% in the first three quarters. In other words, during holiday shopping season, more people start shopping online even more. You know what I mean? The online grabs a bigger share at that time. So I think that's why. This is intuitive to me because it seems to me that the kind of things that you have to buy in real life or are very likely to buy in real life would include things like groceries or furniture or you know, just like things that you can't easily browse Amazon for. Whereas presents are generally a little bit more fungible in that sense. Like uh, anything you buy as a holiday present is likely to be available online. So if the percentage of gifty type things goes up in the fourth quarter, which of course it does, then you would expect the overall the the overall proportion of e-commerce to go up as well because gifty type things are more likely to be sold online. I really not sure I agree. Like I need to, I like to go to a store to get inspired to buy things, you know? Maybe not for my kids because they submit their lists <laughs> and I know in advance a lot of the things they want. <laughs> Do you have a spreadsheet Does it complete with pivot table? No, I will never have a spreadsheet, and I still don't know what a pivot table is. Kids are making a Google slideshows of things that they want now. 
my child drew pictures in case I had no idea what a PlayStation looks like. <laughs> um, does your child listen to to Slate Money? No, he doesn't. So, in the safety in in the safety of the Slate Money cone of silence, is he getting a PlayStation? He is. Oh, <gasps> lucky kid! Probably going to regret that, but. <laughs> <laughs> we got one for Hanukkah this past week. It, it was Hanukkah. We do a family gift, and it was PlayStation 5. Very exciting. We had the 4, though. Did you have the 4, Elizabeth? No. So you're just jumping straight into the 5? Nice. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and did you buy it online? Uh, yes, we did. But I think I'm a little bit of a weirdo in that respect because I find it, first of all, most of our gifts are going to Nebraska or Alabama. And so it's easier to order things online and then just ship it straight there than having to go to the post office and deal with that. And I don't drive. So I, particularly if you're getting big or heavy gifts, I don't want to lug them home. Really. So. Yeah. But I mean, if you're getting a gift for someone and you don't know what you're getting them, then I find it nice to go to a store and kind of like look around and be inspired. Yeah, th- this is the this is the use case of the shopping mall. Like, you don't even know which <laughs> store. You just want to walk around right. the shopping mall until a store inspires you, and you walk into the store, and you're like, ah, this is the right gift at the right store. I didn't even know this store existed, but now I have found the perfect gift. I don't think I've ever done that in my life, but I do think that that's like, that is exactly what shopping malls were made for. But, Felix, allow me to posit this. You live in a shopping mall. It's true, I do. <laughs> it, no, I mean, that is... That is actually true. I I bought a Christmas gift for someone who does listen to Slate Money, so I can't say what it is, but I literally bought it while walking down the street in Nolita and walking into the store. And Nolita is basically a shopping mall. Yes. When I lived in in New York City, I I feel like I was buying random things all the time because you can't help it because there's stores everywhere that you wouldn't plan to go to. But if you just happen to to pop by, then it's still it's a delightful experience to separate you from your money. But that doesn't happen in most of the country, I don't think. This gift that I bought, you know, obviously the store has a website. Um, I could have bought it on the website. It would have been a much more, you know, pain in the ass operation, to be honest. Like the price would have been the same, even if they gave me free shipping, which they probably would not have done. They wouldn't have done the lovely little gift wrapping thing for me. It wouldn't have been nearly as easy. I would have needed to like deal with collecting the package and I wouldn't have been able to just sort of pick it up and hold it and, and sort of say, Oh yeah, this is totally what I want. Like there are a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, physical retail is not going away and why, Online retail, in many ways, has become a kind of lead gen for physical, right? You do a little bit of research on the internet before going out shopping, so you kind of maybe know what you want. And then, having found it online, you buy it in real life, which is kind of the reverse of what a lot of people have been you know, pushing the idea of, you know, go into a store, see what you like, scan it, and then buy it on the internet where it's cheaper. Right. And it's also that it works the other way. Like I recently bought a couch and we went to the store, but we didn't complete the transaction at the store. And then, you know, once we figured out, okay, this is definitely what we want, then we could just go online and and buy it and be all set. To to the same store, right? Same store. Yeah. This is the omni-channel utopia that all retailers are (laughs) dreaming of, which is- That's the dream. 
the, the, the dream is that, like, you know how back in the day people would be like, do you go online? How many hours a day do you go online? You know, and, and there was this idea that there was like a world that we all live in that is not online. And then you, you would do this thing which involves going online and then you would be on the internet and then you would go off the internet and reemerge into the real world. And they were two different things. And, that, and then like e-commerce and real world commerce were like, well, you can either buy it on the internet or you can buy it in the real world. And now I think what we've, you know, the, the, the omni-channel utopia is the idea of a store is just a store. A brand is a brand. And you kind of move seamlessly back and forth between the online experience and the physical experience. Um, and it doesn't really matter where you click the buy button or where you swipe your credit card or whatever, because it's one brand and you just do it in the way that's most convenient for you and might well involve and probably will involve both the store and the website at some point. About half of online retail sales are from real world brick and mortar stores. So like about half is online only stores and, and the other half is stores that actually exist in the world. So yeah, so in that sense, this statistic of you know 17% of retail is online is is a distinction that is becoming decreasingly important. You know, like for Ooh. for the 83% of retail that is not online, you might be buying it in the real world, but there is still some increasingly there is still there is still some kind of an online component to that sale. Wait, Felix, Elizabeth, I was promised a conversation about self-checkout as part of this shopping talk. <laughs> so so self-checkout is wonderful and I love it. You're wrong. But I know, Emily, <laughs> that you and Amanda Mull are, are taking the other side of this debate. Yes, Felix, you are wrong. That's fun to say. That, I'll say it again. Yeah. Felix, you are wrong. <laughs> self-checkout is bad. I don't like it. And a lot of people are on my side, even big companies <laughs> like Walmart, Costco, Five Below. They're all pulling back, not all the way on self-checkout, but a little bit of the way because the machines are clunky. They don't always work. There are a lot of times when you can't use them, like if you're buying alcohol or like cold medicine or whatever, someone has to come over and help you. Um, people don't aren't good at scanning fruits and vegetables. I read one piece that was like, people don't know what the different apples are, which I understand. It can be hard to distinguish different apples from one another. Um, and, you know, I also don't like having to, to do work. Like, I want someone else to do the labor of the checkout. I don't want to do the store's labor for the same price. I think we, I think we actually agree more than you might think. I... I am a great believer in the power of choice. And I I am 100% opposed to compulsory self-checkout. I don't I don't think that stores should force people to self-checkout. And when I go to Target or Wegmans and self-checkout, there is always an option to have like a human being check you out instead if that is something you prefer. And so Let's be happy and keep everyone happy, which is exactly what almost everyone with self-checkout is doing now, which is give people the choice. If they want to self-checkout, they can. If they don't want to, they don't have to. I think this, like this, everyone can get behind this, no? Yeah, I'm fine with the, if you have both options. I use self-checkout when I have one or two items and I know I can just zip in there and not stand in line. 
Right. It's the worst self-checkout experience is when you have a lot of stuff like groceries. Like there's no way I'm grocery shopping, you know, self-checkout because that's like you have to scan and bag and it's just there's not enough room even to bag really. I I feel like I need help. Like I I don't want to do this work. For groceries, the ideal self-checkout experience, which does exist but isn't hugely common, is where you do it at the point of putting it in your cart rather than at the checkout. So you're scanning everything with a scanner which is on the cart, and then you just wheel your cart out to the car which is waiting in the parking lot. And then, you know, there is no, like, station at which you have to check out because it has the station ju- has just been walking around the supermarket but don't you have to put the stuff in bags no i mean if you bring your own bags you can put you can put the stuff in bags oh no i don't like that because i'm one of the i don't know 40 percent of people i just made that data point out that don't remember <laughs> to bring the bags just remember to bring your bags you should do that anyway <laughs> no, i'll never remember no uh, only sometimes you're, you're a terrible person emily <laughs> i'm so terrible one one intri- one um, statistic that is not made up is that if people check out, there is, you can call it what you like. Let's just call it shrinkage, to be polite, of about four percent. The people who like checking out, self, you know, scanning, checking out, self checkouts, all of that kind of thing. People do sometimes scan things twice by mistake and ending up paying more than they should but more often they end up thinking they've scanned something when they haven't and winding up paying less than they should and overwhelmingly this is not deliberate theft overwhelmingly this is genuinely inadvertent just i was checking myself out and i didn't realize i hadn't scanned this thing and that level of shrinkage theft you know not things just not getting scanned works out to about four percent which is it's clearly a number that all of the stores with self-checkout are happy with. It's not something you can really reduce. And they're like, that's, that is a perfectly reasonable price to pay for, you know, given that we can speed the checkout process, have shorter wait times and not have to pay as many cashiers. Really? I, that seems count. I mean, that seems surprising to me that you're saying retailers don't care about elevated shrinkage levels. I'm sorry for saying that. I mean, they do care, but I'm just saying like it's a trade-off and they're willing to make that trade-off. Right. But they're out there complaining most of the time about theft, retail theft, shrinkage. So that's not something they're advertising, obviously. Elizabeth, what is the news hook from the National Retail Federation? Uh, It turns out shrinkage or shoplifting by organized gangs, which was a big thing last year, (laughs) is not as prevalent as the... National Federation of Retail had previously reported, and they realized that they had a data point wrong. This is a da- the, the data point heard around the world that like half of all retail theft was by ORC, organized retail crime, which is a terrifying thing, which brings up visions of like the mafia. You know, that's organized crime, right? So where we all first heard about organized crime was in the context of the mafia. We're like, oh my God, has the mafia got into like stealing deodorant now from Target? It's it's a weird thing. It's it's definitely a post-pandemic phenomenon. And when I'm saying the phenomenon, what I mean is people talking about and writing about organized retail crime in those exact words. I never really heard those words pre-pandemic. And then, you know, there was a bunch of high-profile looting incidents following the Black Lives Matter marches in um, 2021. 
or 2020 rather, then and then people started asking like, uh, were these actually premeditated? Were they organized? Are there whole networks of ways in which people wind up turning around and selling these things on the internet in a way they would never be able, they were never able to sell things before? And this whole concept of organized re- retail crime emerged and was then blamed by various bits of the media and by various bits of the retail you know sector for um a bunch of shrinkage and loss and theft and it became this high big controversy and there was two big sides to the fight on one side was saying like organized retail crime is a big problem and it's destroying the retail sector and probably destroying the morals of the youth and all of this kind of stuff. And then the other side was saying there's no evidence it really exists and what the hell are you talking about? And I don't think this debate is remotely settled, but it is interesting that the the big high-profile data point from the National Retail Federation now has, how na- has now had to be retracted and we now have to just retreat into a fog of utter ignorance and no one has a clue whether this thing really exists or not. Well, I wonder if part of it is just that the optics are more convenient for retailers, because if you frame it as organized crime, that sounds like a more difficult thing to prevent. So when you see these drastic measures like putting everything behind locks, maybe it makes that policy seem a little more sympathetic. Because if you just say, we have a shoplifting problem, then, you know, if you say shoplifter, I think one of a writer, I don't think a insidious band of roving retail thieves, you know? Yeah, Winona was never organized. (laughs) If there had been five of her, sure. (laughs) Exactly. I think we should have an ad break right now, but when we come back, we're going to talk about airlines. Okay, let's switch subjects entirely and talk about airline mergers in general and the acquisition of Hawaiian Airlines by Alaska Airlines in particular. Do either of you guys have an opinion on this one? I have just written a massive chunk of my newsletter this week on this subject, but I want to know, like, is is this something that is only of interest to me or is this, like, a big deal? I think it's interesting that I didn't realize the kind of scale of the consolidation that's taken place in the airline industry because I don't fly super often, but it's like four airlines now control 80% of the industry. It's uh, United Delta, Southwest, and American, basically. And it seems like the consolidation has not... This is the, the part where I was kind of wrestling. Has or has not the consolidation been good for consumers or not? Um, because overall... The price of flying is a lot lower than it used to be, but everyone would agree that it stinks to fly. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is a very sort of Borkian way of looking at it. Like, have consumers got lower prices? And generally, yeah, they have, which is weird when you get this degree of cons- consolidation. And to be clear, like, it's really three. It's American United and Delta are the big three... U.S. carriers, Southwest is a distant fourth, and then you have um, Alaska and Spirit and JetBlue as like also rands, and then everyone else is nowhere nowhere to be seen. And they're all trying to consolidate Alaska, Spirit, JetBlue. They're all trying to beef up. And now Spirit, Spirit and JetBlue are trying to merge, and Alaska and Hawaiian are trying to merge. Um, and what they're doing is they're trying to, mer- you know, the, the Spirit JetBlue Alaska Hawaiian consolidation is really desperately trying to get, you know, 
up to the level of a Southwest, but even Southwest is not remotely at the level of a United or an American or a Delta. Um, but beyond prices, I mean, Elizabeth, maybe you can speak to this, but I mean, it's not just prices when you say like our consumers better off with all the, with the consolidation. It's also the experience of flying, which is worse, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in my opinion, but you also get uh, nickel and dimed more by the airlines, you know, baggage fees, small things. Uh, getting a seat with two more inches of legroom will cost you 150 bucks more. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the thing that is hard to capture when we're looking at airline ticket prices. You know, that it used to be that all of that stuff was included in the headline price, and the headline price was higher. Now it's all become sort of weirdly disaggregated. And the headline prices come down, but people wind up paying more money for checking bags or extra legroom or priority boarding or whatever it is. And so it's hard to to see to see what's actually happened to like the we used to be buying a bundle and now we're buying a fraction of that bundle. And the fraction of the bundle costs less than the bundle did. But it's not clear what's ha- you know, how many people avail themselves with the rest of the bundle and what's happened to the prices of that kind of thing. So it's it's actually surprisingly difficult to come to a a clear conclusion on whether prices are down because it's like prices of what? Right. It's like prices are down if you're willing to sit in the in the row next to the bathroom with your knees in your mouth. Then like, yeah, it's a great deal for you. Yeah, there's this there's this new product that a lot of the airlines have now, which is called basic economy, which is kind of what Southwest has always been providing all along, which is just a really, really basic service of getting you from A to B and really almost nothing else. And it's something that has been extremely popular in the UK, uh, sorry, in Europe for, for many, many years. You know, there's a whole network, many networks of discount airlines in the UK, the Ryanair's and EasyJets and all of those. Um, and ultimately, the main thing that you are buying when you are buying an airline ticket is just the thing that will get you from A to B. And whether you are in first class or whether you are stuck in the back by the toilets, like you're going to get there in the same time on the same plane. But yeah, it's what we are seeing is that the big airlines are more and more willing to provide relatively bad service at much lower prices than they were ever able to charge before. And then, as Elizabeth says, like then upsell you a whole bunch of products on top of that. So has consolidation been good or has consolidation been bad? Which is it? I think people, yeah, people (laughs) don't like the, it feels like a bait and switch, right? On some level, I think people prefer to pay more for the all-inclusive bundle than to be sort of, suckered in by a low headline fare and then realize that they have to pay all of this extra money for these, you know, other things that they used to take for granted. It's it's the as a consumer experience, you feel bled dry that way, even if the total amount you pay is not actually higher. I think some of the fees also just uh create some antisocial behavior. If you're on a heavily packed plane and you see people bringing in giant bags because they don't want to pay baggage fees and then trying to cram them into the overheads. It's just, you know, it makes for a miserable experience for everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, I've long, long, long been a believer that it's carry-ons that should be, that should carry the fee, not check bags. Check bags should be free, carry-ons should be expensive. And all of the airlines do it the other way around, and that makes no sense to me. 
That's really smart. Wait, but there's other aspects to flying. Has consolidation made flying more efficient? Has it made it safer? Uh, it's been, I mean, like the, the safety of flying has been getting, you know, flying has been getting a lot safer very continuously for as long as commercial aviation has existed pretty much the commercial aviation industry is very good at making things safer and in general things get safer over time right now if you read the new york times there's a real problem going on with the air traffic controllers and that's another place where there's a massive labor shortage and as a result of that labor shortage there's you know genuine safety worries um that however is completely outside the ability of the airlines to fix what about, um, I saw a statistic saying that airlines aren't uh, on time, that there's a problem with uh, arriving on time now. It's, it's become worse. Does that have nothing also to do with consolidation? Is that more like tie back to labor shortages and air traffic controllers? Yeah, I think that's labor shortages as well, uh, often on the pilot front. Like if a pilot gets sick, it's hard to find a replacement pilot because there, aren't ju there just aren't that many pilots around anymore. A lot of them have retired. A lot of them, you know, also climate change. Also the fact that a lot of it is ultimately going to be a problem at the airports. And again, the airlines don't really control the airports. The brands we mostly interact with when we fly at the airlines, but there's a huge amount of civil aviation infrastructure involving, you know, airports and air traffic controllers and all of this kind of stuff that is not really under the purview of the airlines. And it is very important to answering all of these questions. So let's get back to Alaska, Hawaii tie up, like what to make of it then given all this context, like, is it good or bad? <laughs> is it good or bad? It's, I mean, so one of the interesting things about this, like in contrast to virtually, well, in contrast to all of the other airline mergers that we have had, Continental United or even Alaska Virgin America or any of these mergers, like they have promised they're going to keep both brands. They're going to keep the brands separate. And this is smart because Hawaiian is an incredibly strong brand that is quite beloved on the island of Hawaii. And if anything, it would kind of make sense to just rebrand the whole thing as Hawaiian, except for, you know, if you're flying from New York to Alaska, doing that on Hawaiian Airlines doesn't make any sense at all. So they're going to keep both brands and they're going to keep a lot of the Hawaiian infrastructure, partly to try and mollify potential opposition on the island of Hawaii from the regulators there and the politicians there to try and get the support of Hawaiian politicians for the merger because yeah like the biden administration just really doesn't like any kind of mergers and its general rule is you know if you're merging you're reducing competition and that's anti-competitive and we don't want to let you do that they have already said they want to block the spirit jet blue deal um and if you look at the share price of hawaiian airlines while it's up a lot from where it was because the bid is incredibly high compared to where it was it's also way below where the bid is right the share price is like 1370 something like that and the bid is at 18 so the markets are basically saying we really don't think this is likely you know we at best we think there's like a two in three chance of this actually going through so depend on who wins in 2024 too perhaps yeah i think i think if if we have a republican government in 2024 it would be much more likely to approve it you know 
it's not clear it would be massively anti-competitive in that they don't really compete with each other very much. You know, there's not a lot of routes where Alaska and Hawaiian compete. But yeah, I think what Alaska really wants is to be able to get into get get a really big route network and especially Trans-Pacific. And I think this is one of the super interesting things that Honolulu can and probably should be an important stopping point for people crossing the Pacific Ocean. And it kind of isn't at the moment. But if you want to fly from, I don't know, Boston to Tokyo, um, you need to stop somewhere. And it kind of makes sense to do that in Honolulu and trying to build that into the Alaska network and making that a very easy and, and simple thing to do kind of makes sense. That's the kind of scale, that's the kind of scale where big airlines with a big networks can provide those kind of services and everyone appreciates it. Also, Alaska Airlines, just fun fact, serves 19 cities, many that are not connected by roads. You know, those like Alaskan places where no one can get out unless by plane. I was just reading someone talking about like, where I live in Alaska, a bunch of grapes cost $40 because, you know, it's so hard to get things there. Anyway, that's all. Fun fact. Yeah. I mean, Hawaiian is not dissimilar. They fly to a bunch of uh, islands that, well, you know, obviously you can't get to by road. But are, how much do the grapes cost? <laughs> People are complaining about the price of macadamia nuts, I'm telling you. <laughs> Once we come back after the ads, we're going to talk about ad-supported podcasts. The question I have been asked repeatedly over the past couple of months is, is the podcast bubble bursting? And I want to posit that there are two answers to this the first answer is an un unequivocal no the amount the number of podcasts is continuing to rise the amount of hours that people listen to podcasts is going up to record highs the amount of dollars spent on podcast advertising is rising to record highs and the growth rates in all of these numbers are surprisingly high like 40 percent a year like big growth rates in the podcast system as a whole. Um, so everything is growing. If there is a bubble, it's definitely not bursting, it's expanding. And podcasting is becoming more and more popular and people are listening to many more podcasts. So that's one answer is hell no. The other answer is absolutely, if you look at valuations for podcast companies and especially for podcast production companies and especially demand for anyone who's producing like highly produced and well-edited podcasts that has gone from this incredibly greedy, like everyone wanted to get into it. Everyone was spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get into it to everyone's just trying to get out of it. And people are losing their jobs left, right and center and podcasts are being canceled all over the shop. And so if you're looking at the sort of prestige, highly produced podcast world, yeah, there was a period a couple of years ago when everyone in that world was was fighting off suitors, and now they're feeling very alone and and, and worried that they are going to lose their job if they haven't lost their job already. We have no self-interest in this segment, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're on the on the safe side of of the ledger. Yeah. Uh, Felix shared around um, an interesting 
Substack post from Adam Davidson, who was the founder of Planet Money, and then went on to found his own or co-found his own podcast production company, which I will admit to not even knowing existed. Um, that didn't do very well, and it was you know founded to make exactly the kind of podcasts that are now not doing very well, highly produced narrative podcasts, and that is not what Slate Money is. <laughs> yeah, this is not a scripted show. Right. We're a chat show, um, but we don't have celebrities. And what Adam talks about in his post is like the economics of producing, you know, a very like a narrative kind of podcast um, like Heavyweight, which was canceled uh, this week by Spotify versus doing uh, like the Joe Rogan show or uh, Smartless, where you have just like celebrities who are actually excited about being on a podcast doing a podcast or Julia Louis-Dreyfus has had a successful podcast. Um, these are the ones that everyone wants to make now because these celebrities, you have to pay them, but you don't have to pay them very much if the podcast doesn't do well. And if it does do well, it does real well. And um, the production costs are pretty low. So that's like what what we've moved towards. And I think for some people that's sad because I know as I'm a heavyweight fan myself, it's sad to me that there'll be more Joe Rogany kind of podcast and fewer heavyweight kind of podcasts, but I don't think I'm a typical listener. I I think well, we, the the jury is still out on heavyweight, and I am um, in the camp that believes that it will live on. It has had a couple of corporate owners along you know its road, and it will find someone who wants to produce it, and it will keep on going somehow. I think what happened with heavyweight was that. Spotify just decided that it didn't really want to be in the podcast production business anymore. Certainly not the narrative podcast production business. It's not a great way of making money, and it's certainly not enough money to move the needle at Spotify. Spotify is going through big layoffs right now, just trying to become sort of leaner and more efficient and putting more wood behind fewer arrows. Um, they think that you know, the thing they really care about is Spotify subscribers, and they reckon they can convert people to being Spotify subscribers more effectively by doing what they're doing right now with audiobooks, which is like if you're a Spotify subscriber, you can basically listen to any audiobook for free, which is awesome. And that's a you know what you know a better way of spending their resources than trying to invest in podcasts. So they're taking these podcasts off their books, moving them over to someone else. They don't really mind who. And I do suspect that Heavyweight will live on, that someone will produce it. But I did the math. Um, heavyweight has been around for eight years. And over the course of those eight years, it has produced 57 episodes. So that works out on average at, to one episode every seven weeks. And it basically needs to pay for a huge amount of work in producing these episodes and, and editing these episodes and reporting these episodes and all the rest of it on the back of ads that get placed into one episode every seven weeks. Like I don't even understand how intuitively that's even possible without just the world's most enormous audience. And I don't think it, it's ever likely to get uh, an audience that big. Well, it should. It's a very good podcast. For people who don't know, um, it's it's run by this guy, Jonathan Goldstein, who's very funny, but very good at interviewing people. And the heavyweight is like people have some kind of like heavy story to like get off their chests. And he does like these great, he helps people like someone's 
did something nice for me 20 years ago and, you know, I want to reconnect with them or I want to find such and such a person. So help them find them. He goes on these like long investigations. He, it's delightful. Um, people should just listen to it. And yeah, I don't know the economics, I guess don't make sense, but that's, that's the thing with a lot of journalism, you know, the economics don't make sense. And then other pieces of the media company kind of like cover it, right? That's like invest investigative journalism at the New York times for, or whatever. It's like the style section basically is subsidizing that. Um, right. I mean, something like a heavyweight podcast, you just need other uh, parts of the company to kind of subsidize it. Which company? Like, I mean, the, the point is like, yeah, it's not, there aren't that many economies of scale in podcasting, right? Like a newspaper is a bundle. If you had just investigations, no one would read it. Right. But the idea is that you subscribe to the New York times and you get a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and most importantly, the, the operative word there is subscribe. So, you know, there are a bunch of successful podcasts on like the Patreon model where people pay for them. And that works fine. If you have a subscription revenue model and then you can have ads on top of that as well, then you can start having a much more attractive business model. If you look at the... That's what Spotify is. So, yeah, that was... No, you're absolutely right. That was the idea behind Spotify. but. If you look at what's been happening in public radio, um, places like NPR and WNYC have been canceling pure podcasts, but not the sort of hybrid shows that are both podcasts and radio shows like New Yorker Radio Hour, say, or something like that. And the reason is that if you have multiple revenue streams, these things are just much more financially sensible they, they make more the, the the business model is much more attractive so if you can sell ads on the radio as well as selling ads on the podcast and also syndicate your show to a whole bunch of other radio stations who will pay you for it then suddenly you have like three different revenue streams and it all starts making sense also there's you know different incentives in a newsroom you have uh you know there's a public interest incentive in doing investigative work that's not profitable and doesn't even have necessarily a huge audience but doing long-form podcasting for a company like Spotify, unless they determine that they need a kind of prestige show or that it really is going to convert subscribers, there's not much incentive to keep podcasts like that within Spotify. It's not their core business. It, it makes sense to me. And you brought up HuffPost, but it's like Verizon buy, buying HuffPost. I mean, if they were really, really interested in making money from HuffPost, they probably could have like worked on it a bit more. Um, but it wasn't important enough for that. And I feel like with like these pot, these prestige narrative podcasts, they're not that important for Spotify to, to get right or to really work on them, to figure out the model that you're describing, Felix, you know, where you have like the radio stream and the syndication stream. And the, like, I don't feel like Spotify needs to do all that. It just needs to get people to sign up for Spotify. And I wanted to point out one other thing about Spotify. Um, Another reason, because we're talking about this right now, because Spotify laid off uh, 1,500 people this week and canceled two podcasts, Heavyweight, which we already mentioned, and Stolen, which is like a Pulitzer-winning uh, podcast. And I think part of what's happening, too, is we're in um, this high-rate environment where money isn't free anymore, and a company like Spotify can't just be a high growth company that isn't, you know, serious about making money anymore. And the days of like spending hundreds of millions of dollars on long shot on podcasts and podcasting companies is over. And, and the CEO even said something about, 
you know, they have to refinance some debt that they they borrowed during during the time when money was essentially free. And now, you know, it's going to cost them a lot. Rates are really high. Um, so they can't just like mess around with this stuff anymore. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that acquisition cost is a sunk cost. You know, they, they did spend hundreds of millions of dollars, not just on Gimlet, but also on Megaphone, which used to be part of Slate. Um, and, you know, I still feel whenever I walk into the Slate studios, I'm like, yeah, you know, we... We're still chugging along here, having our little chat shows, and they're great. But like, also, Slate proved to be a great incubator for, you know, that investment in Megaphone made our Slate overlords a huge amount of money. And podcasting, you know, there was this time then that a lot of money was sloshing around, like real big multinational music industry type sums of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Sony was getting into it. Spotify was getting into it. Um, and those days of of just you know massive valuations and thinking that podcasting was going to become this big global industry i think are probably behind us at this point or insofar as you do have that kind of thing you it is going to be very um talent focused and so it's going to be as you say people like joe rogan or julia louis dreyfus or someone like that where the money really follows the talent rather than the production company. All right, we should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? I do. My number is four. And that's the number of nuns who have initiated a shareholder lawsuit against Smith & Wesson for marketing the AR-15 in ways that they consider unsafe and, and you know not good for society. Collectively, the four nuns own a little over a, a thousand shares of Smith & Wesson, which isn't really enough to do anything. So this is, you know, clearly a political statement, I guess, on their part, but it does give them standing to sue the company, I guess. For securities fraud? No, they're alleging that the company has been, the the way that they manufacture and market the AR-15 is bad for the company long-term because of all the mass shootings and things like that. Mm. And they're like, as as shareholders, we lose money because it's bad for the company, and therefore what you did was illegal? No, I don't think that's their argument. I mean, you could initiate a shareholder lawsuit for what you consider mismanagement. Like, as in a, in a court of law, rather than just as a sort of put, putting something up for a vote in a shareholder you know, proxy or something. Yeah. Amazing. I did not know this. But um, good luck, nuns. <laughs> so where are the nuns from? They're from like four different states. Like this is a, they're four, not four nuns that, you know, hang out together. They have Aww. all joined together for this lawsuit. My, uh, my number is 3.7, which is the percentage of the U.S. population that is unemployed. This is a low number, and it is not only low, it is down from where it was last month. It was 3.9% last month. It is now 3.7%. And what that is is a sign that the labor market remains extremely tight and that the Federal Reserve, insofar as it has been trying to slow down the economy and get some slack back into the labor market has not been hugely successful at doing so. But maybe that doesn't matter given that inflation seems to be coming down and no one expects inflation to go back up. And so maybe this is exactly the soft landing that we 
all dreamed of, which is where inflation, where unemployment remains low and inflation comes down and you wind up in this Goldilocks zone of low inflation and low unemployment and everyone is happy. But the vibes aren't happy, but that seems to be where we're kind of heading. The immaculate disinflation. That's it. Immaculate disinflation. I knew there was a phrase I was missing. Immaculate disinflation. <laughs> Immac disinflation. Immac disinflation. Okay. Do you know the unemployment rate has been below 4% for 22 straight months? Just fun fact. More numbers for you. Fact. Yeah. Um, Emily, what's your number? My number is 500. That is the approximate number of people who lined up at dawn in Paris this week at the opening of <laughs> France's first Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme! Woohoo! The French got really, really into the Krispy Kreme. And I challenge anyone to read an article about the opening of a donut shop and not come away just really wanting a donut, because um, that's what happened to me. Okay, so I'm going I'm to let you guys into a little secret here. Since you've made it to the end of Slate Money and you are therefore a loyal Slate Money listener, in the new year, we are going to be doing a whole regular series of interview shows where we just like interview one person, either like Emily or I will talk, sit down and talk to one person for, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that, and find someone interesting and talk about something really interesting. And those will come out on Mondays and it's going to be awesome. And I have recorded a couple of these already. And one of them is about Glossier, the cosmetics company. And one of the things I get into in that conversation is this idea of the manufactured queue. It is quite easy. I think this started in Japan. It is quite easy for companies to find ways to get people to line up mm. outside stores. And if you manufacture a queue, that causes an enormous amount of like earned media basically mm -hmm. and you can create a huge amount of buzz around your brand because everyone sees the queue and everyone goes oh you you must have a really buzzy and successful brand because of this queue and i'm like and this has now made it it made it from japan to the united states with all of the sort of hype beast stuff and also cosmetics and now it seems to have made it over to paris as well i can guarantee you that like if you go to the Krispy Kreme store in Paris, like, you know, some random Thursday in January, it's probably not going to have a queue outside it. But I love this way that we can, that the queues have become this in, indicia of success. The lines, just for the, for the Americans listening. <laughs> for the Americans <laughs> among us, <laughs> a queue is a line. I guess Parisian, in Paris, donuts aren't like there aren't that many donut options. I mean, there's every other pastry you want forever, but I guess there aren't. Donuts are more of like a rare thing, apparently. Mm. Also, maybe it's just pastries that, you know, induce this kind of behavior. I'm thinking of the great cronut craze uh, yes. of New mm -hmm. York. and I, I don't even remember what year that was, but then it was quickly followed by like three other hybrid pastries that caused lines out the door at every bakery <laughs> in New York. All right. I would love to thank you all for listening to Slate Money, for writing to us on slatemoney at slate.com. I'd like to thank Jared Downing for producing. And we will be back on Monday with another episode of Slate Money Travel, where I get to talk to Pavia Rosati about hotels. And it's actually awesome. So listen to that. It's all coming up on Monday.